Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Hit your money goals without switching platforms. Download SoFi's all-in-one super app for industry-leading APY. Great loan rates and stock trading. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank, NANMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to our Monday edition of On the Tape. I am Dan Nathan. I am joined, as always, by Guy Adami. And on Mondays, our co-host, EY from SoFi. That would be Liz Young. Uh, Welcome, people, to this March Madness edition. Do we have any thoughts here? Oh, Liz lost her Marquette. Uh. Guy, and your Rangers are just on fire. 13-0 in two games. Some madness is not taking place at these bullshit college basketball games. It's actually (laughs) taking place in the magic world of Madison Square Garden, which oddly enough, will be the home of the tournament over the next week or so, Dan. Yes, and, and Liz, we were pulling for your Marquette, whatever they called. What do they call it? Golden the, Eagles. Gold, Golden Eagles. March um, Madness is over as yeah, far as I'm concerned. It is over for you. It's but done. But, but it, let me tell you something. It is madness in the markets right now. So we're, we're recording here shortly after the Open on Monday, and I think all weekend long, um, a lot of investors were waiting to see what was going to happen with the um, Credit Suisse and, and UBS kind of forced uh, merger. Let's call it a bailout. Let's call it what it is here, especially with that backstop that you're getting from the Swiss National Bank, and then the other one over here, First Republic. Guy, you saw that, that that guy Tom Barrick, he was charged with finding something uh, to shore up this bank here, and which I think is kind of funny in a way because this is the one where Friday afternoon it hits after the close. Danny might call that a Friday night dirty. Uh, and just by the way, before we kind of finish the, the First Republic thing, stick around because at the other half of this podcast recording, Danny Moses and I spoke to Jim Chanos of Chanos and co on Friday afternoon on a very special uh, market call. And we're going to put the audio in this feed. That was a great conversation. So stick around for that. But Tom Barrick was charged, okay, with, I kind of, I don't know what that meant, guy, helping them do a private sale 
of equity of a public stock, right? The stock immediately starts trading down in the aftermarket on Friday. It was down 25%, I think, on its first pre-market prints this morning. It's trading a little bit better um, right now, down 12.5% or so. But what do you make of this? Because, again, if you want to focus on these two banks, uh, one being Credit Suisse, the other being First Republic, which are you going to place more emphasis on uh, for the trading week right now? Well, First Republic, I think, is more important. I mean, I think Credit Suisse and UBS have their own issues. I mean, we've been talking about European banks seemingly forever on the different shows that we do. But First Republic is a bank that a lot of people loved. Um, It was one of the darlings of the banking sector for a long time. You heard people wax poetic. And effectively, what is it saying? I mean, there are a lot of people out there that believe the equity is headed to zero. I'm not necessarily one of those people, but you know that $30 billion uh, that they got from the 11 different banks last week in terms of deposits, that's for 120 days, um, which goes by really quickly, as you know. So I'm not quite sure what happens after that. I guess there's this hope that that $30 billion will provide stability over that period of time, and maybe they can sort of right the ship. But I got to tell you something, the way the stock is trading, people are selling first, asking questions later. And I don't think the market is making a big enough... I know it sounds crazy because that's seemingly all we talk about, but I don't think the broader market is fully reconciling what's going on with the banking system right now. Yeah. So, Liz, last week we talked about this. You know, this was eerily reminiscent. I mean, literally, it was 15 years ago to the weekend when Bear was sold to J.P. Morgan in a similar way, backstop from you know the Fed here, and it was kind of a force that I don't think Jamie Dimon wanted to buy it. I don't think J.P. Morgan wanted to sell for two bucks. It ended up being ten dollars. When you look at just kind of what has transpired, do you see this as a kind of kicking the can down the road? Because we made the point on numerous podcasts last. Week, I mean, when it comes to financial crises, right, and when it comes to crisis of confidence in our financial institutions and in our regulators, right, these are not one-off sort of things. And we think about the amount of banks that have failed just in the last couple of weeks, and then the ones that have been basically bailed out. I mean, are, are you thinking? Are there any quick fixes to this? Because in my mind, and, and just in my market history, that's just not the case when it comes to these sorts of things. They're not just kind of one and done in a month, and then we move on. No, there's no quick fix. I think what we're trying to do right now is shore it up, right? And prevent it from becoming more and more contagious. The issue, I think there's a couple issues here. Number one, I would venture to guess that there are plenty of people out there who after 2008, 2009 are now watching this occur, thinking to themselves, I thought this wasn't supposed to happen again. I thought we put regulations in place. I thought that we prepared ourselves sufficiently for this to not happen. Well, we probably did in the sense of the systemically important financial institutions, right? The capital that they've had to keep on hand. But usually what happens in a crisis is it's caused by something that we didn't see coming, caused by something that we didn't ever have experience with before. And that's just how this works. And, you know, the crises usually rhyme. They don't necessarily repeat, obviously, but the catalyst that takes us into them is always different. It's just that once it starts, it's not really all that different. And as we've covered many times, and I continue to look at this on a daily basis, almost on a a minute by minute basis at this point, the re-steepening of the yield curve just keeps telling me this is not good. This is not going well. And 
you know, I think there's there's no magic easy button that's going to fix it, that's going to make it go away. And I think what we continue to be reminded of in the financial system is how interconnected all of it is and how interconnected it is to the economy. It wouldn't be this scary if this was happening in, for example, the industrial sector. Yeah. And we'll get to that and what it means for the economy, because there's some pretty good takes and there's some major strategists at major financial institutions who are doing about faces on what they were kind of expecting for a landing for the economy and what this kind of bank crisis uh, means for the economy. But Guy, I want to hit this, you know, because Liz just talked about regulation in the post-financial crisis. And, and we know that, you know, the banks were yelling and screaming about having to get their tier one capital ratios up for years. Right after the financial crisis, they were unable to do dividends and buybacks and that sort of thing. And Carl Quintanilla, who you just call what? CQ. And he is a force on the Twitter, right? But he tweeted out this um, over the weekend that U.S. banks have substantial capacity to absorb losses. The systemically important banks have combined over $400 billion in excess capital to take in losses from regional banks that they may purchase. So I thought that was really interesting. And, you know, over the weekend, I was thinking a lot about this guy. So if all of the major money center banks are literally on speed dial with our regulators, with the White House, right, with the Fed, the Treasury, the whole nine here, right? When we get to the end of this quarter, we know that banks are going to report Q1 earnings starting in mid-April here. Don't you think that there's going to be somebody out there that makes a Meredith Whitney type call that these major money centers or some of these other investment banks are going to have to cut their dividends and or cut their buybacks. The very thing that they were dying to get back that they suspended, right, during the pandemic when we didn't know what was going to happen. And might that be the next thing that causes, and again, full disclosure here, um, you know, one of the first trades I got put on when I got back um, on Friday after vacation last week was short XLF. I mean, I think we're whistling past the graveyard. You know, this kind of just reeks to me of the thing that when you think about how the cycles have just been accelerated, right? And and, and I, if you're kind of going by the 2008 playbook, Okay, mid-March, we had the J.P. Morgan, Bear Stearns forced merger and this and that, whatever. And then there was a couple other palpitations, but things really didn't heat up until the summer. I think things accelerate. I'm just curious, guys, if there was a call for some of the major financial institutions to cut dividends and buybacks, um, what do you think would happen to this sector? Well, I mean, obviously, there's going to be a, a slew of investor base that's not going to be able to be in said stocks if, in fact, they do cut dividends, right? And if they do suspend their buybacks, number one. Number two... You know, it's interesting, you know, I find this fascinating to a certain extent. The banks, whether interest rates go to zero or not now, almost doesn't matter. I mean, the lending standards are going to be such where it's going to be far more stringent and it's going to it's going to be a drag on their earnings without question. And think about the optics right now if you're a bank around buybacks and dividends. I mean, do you really want to get caught up in that? And it's, you know, a lot of people over the weekend said, "Oh, those crooks at Silicon Valley, they're saying this to me." And I'm like, Actually, no, um, they, they didn't do anything wrong in terms of nefarious actions. I mean, what they were guilty of basically was mismanagement. Now, it's nuanced, I guess, but my point is it wasn't criminal. And the ground shifted beneath their feet so quickly. And when you have a depositor base that is basically a homogenous group of people that at any point could pick up the phone and tell their VC buddy, hey, you better get your money out of Silicon Valley Bank. That's why you see runs. And so that was, to me, somewhat Silicon Valley specific, but now you're seeing the carryover. And I got to tell you something, you know, it's not over by any stretch of imagination. This whole UBS Credit Suisse thing, to your earlier point, typically in math, when you put two negatives together, you get a positive. Well, in this world, you don't. You just get two bigger pieces of shit, pardon my French. And that's what's going on 
between UBS and Credit Suisse, their problems are not solved combining these two entities. So there's still a lot out there to navigate through. And a lot of it is on the back of, and we've said it for a while, Liz says it all the time as well. Something is going to break along the way. I mean, she's been saying this for months now. She, you know, I'm paraphrasing what you said, EY, but you know, you'd be hard pressed to believe at the end of this cycle you're going to be like, "Oh, we got through this unscathed." No, something's going to break, and we're seeing it now. But to think that by some um, magic it's over, I think that's a folly. One of the positive things I think right now, or maybe the the hope that people are operating under, is that. Exactly what you said, Guy. There was no nefarious action. There was no malicious intent. And I think what we're seeing, what we've already seen in the the few that have fallen is there's going to be this wave of survival of the fittest. And I know I've used that phrase before. So we're seeing the ones that were the most vulnerable and the ones that maybe were mismanaged and didn't have the risk controls in place and, and probably were the most sensitive to what's going on. But the reality is that it's just the structure of the market right now and the tightening that has been purposely put in place. I think the Fed obviously intended to cool demand in order to cool inflation along with it. I don't think that this is what they had in mind. I don't think that they worked this into, uh, you know, their their likely scenario of how we were going to take care of the problem, because now it's become maybe a bigger problem that they have to solve. And, and I talked about this last week that we're still facing competing priorities. So there's the priority of making sure that the financial markets and the financial system is operating as it should, and then the priority of bringing inflation back down. And frankly, neither of those are occurring right now. So, you know, it's it's a tough spot to be in. And we've obviously got a Fed meeting coming up in about 48 hours. That is maybe the the most important one yet. I think we say that every time, but this is probably the most important one. And I'll tell you what, I go back and forth still intraday on what I think they should do and what I what I think they will do. You know, it's interesting. So David Rosenberg, Rosenberg Research, friend of the pod, um, he wrote this morning, the clearest argument for the Fed to stand pat is the tightening in financial conditions this month, equivalent to nearly 50 basis points of rate hikes. It's done his job for the Fed. Now, David's been arguing that the Fed is looking at lagging indicators in their push to um, continue to raise interest rates and battle inflation. And Guy, I'm just curious what you think about that, especially in the context of just kind of what's happened at the discount window, right? We've seen this chart flow around that borrowing at the discount window reaches an all-time high. So when you think about that, you think about financial conditions, you think about what the Fed usually does in these sorts of periods, right? When they open the discount window and it's taken to that extent, they're usually moving towards an easing sort of policy. So my question to you is that the Fed has an impossible job this week to Liz's oh, point. Wait a second. Hold on a second. Yeah. yeah. Who created that impossible job? You make it sound as if like you know, it's woe is me, Fed. I mean, they put themselves in this, just so we're crystal clear, the impossible job that they find themselves having to undertake is the job that they created for themselves. So if you're looking for a sympathetic figure, don't look to me for that, but please continue. Yeah, no. So so let's just talk about this. On Wednesday, I mean, we're going to have Fed Chair Powell. I mean, literally two weeks ago, there was a debate because of the hot economic data, whether they were going to go to 50 basis points, right? Fed funds, futures, the CME, Fed tracker was pricing him 25. That was the thing, right? Once they got done with those four consecutive 75 basis point hikes, right? So we had four of those. They were like, okay, well, then maybe we just kind of go down. We 
ratcheted down to 25. It got ratcheted up to 50. Now it's potentially a pause altogether. So curious what you're expecting, what we think some potential outcomes are. And listen, to me, I think we have basically two trading days before that comes out. And again, they're going to make their mind up. They probably already made their mind up, but the market has a way of kind of pushing the Fed around a little bit. So Guy, I'm just curious, thoughts here on, on how they can thread the needle? The answer is they're going to go 25 because if they were to do nothing, it's a complete slap in the face as some of the rhetoric that they've been throwing out for the last few months. I think given what's transpired over the last couple of weeks with these different banks, going 50 will appear tone deaf. So 25 is probably the answer. Obviously, then it becomes the rhetoric and some of the the dialogue on the back of it to the extent that there are any comments made. That's that's what the market will take its cues from. But I'm pretty convinced 25 is the answer. I will tell you, I was shocked and actually impressed by Christine Lagarde last week, the fact that the ECB did go 50 basis points. And EY has made this uh, point a number of times. They have a more dire inflation uh, problem than we do. But even with that said, the fact that they stuck to their guns and went the 50 basis points that they were promising the market to me was impressive and was I would submit it's the right thing to do. And I understand what Rosie is saying in terms of backwards looking. What I'll tell you is this inflation problem has not been solved at all. Despite the fact that the data seems to be working in their favor, they are still light years away from where they need to be. And any inclination that the market will take that these guys and gals are taking the foot off the pedal, the inflation problem that they're trying to defeat is just going to come back in spades. And that's the problem that they face that's unfortunate. I want to say it was King Henry IV. Uneasy is the head that wears the crown or lies the crown is the exact verbiage. I am not that person, unfortunately, because I do a much better job. But they've put themselves in this situation and they got to navigate themselves out of it. And, you know, and I've said this now, I'm on a bit of a soapbox again, but that Ben Bernanke character, the fact that they allowed him to leave after putting on the largest prop trade in the history of mankind is borderline criminal. And I'm all for making money in, in different forms of life and stuff. But the fact that he was allowed to go to Citadel is an absolute joke. That should have been investigated. But back to you, Dan. Guy Adami handing out pep, well, it's pep true. talks. Tell me, what did I say there that was wrong? I mean, it's it's you think about it. You think Citadel wanted him because of his good looks and beard? No. They wanted him because they were going to put him in a room and flash the lights on him and say, okay, Ben, what are the weak points of what you just created and how do we exploit them? And that's exactly what's going on. I'm going to pivot a little bit. Here's what I think the risk is in the stock market, that we are celebrating. If you look at look at what's happening even just right now as we record this, right? We've got markets up, the Dow and the S&P both up, NASDAQ marginally negative. We're almost celebrating the idea that the Fed could pause and that they're going to save us once again. I think it's very obvious that this is temporary. I think it's very obvious that a little rally here would be temporary. And I don't know that we'll make it all the way to bank earnings before we give up on the rally, but bank earnings and statements from those big money center banks might be what finally breaks that. And you've got investors saying, oh, wait, this is actually a bigger problem, right? Or, oh, wait, now the big guys are even admitting that they're a little bit more fragile in this environment than we expected. I would find it hard to believe that we'd make it another month rallying and going through this kind of in a peaceful way. That being said, I don't know that I agree that they should do 25 this week. I, I agree that they still have an inflation problem. I don't necessarily think they should be done. 
But I think if they're going to stick to their data dependency piece, they they could this gives them an excuse to come out and say, okay, the data has changed. The events have occurred and we don't have enough information about stability in the financial system at this point because the events are so recent that we're going to be responsible about it and pause while we gather that information. But I think they'd leave the door open to keep hiking. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be met with positivity in the market. I don't think either way is going to be met with positivity. And if they do that, if they pause and then rehike, they're doing exactly what happened in the late seventies and trying to sort of chase their own tail and catch up. Right. So, I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not going to give a pep talk either. I think that they're in a tough spot. I don't think the market likes it either way. And I don't think that there is a good answer. So it really comes down in my opinion to what are the likely outcomes for the economy. Um, Ed Yardeni, uh, the president of Yardeni research, here was a comment over the weekend. The current banking crisis isn't likely to be as wrenching as the GFC. However, it could cause a recession if it triggers economy-wide credit crunch. We aren't raising our recession odds just yet, but we may have to do that. All right, so this is you know something that we start seeing by a lot of strategists, right? So we went from the consensus in late Q3, early Q4 of last year that there was going to be a recession in 2023 to then by January, there's going to be a soft landing. By February, there was going to be a no landing. Then we have a bank crisis, and it seems like almost every strategist is kind of turning their tide here a little bit. Um, Rosie said, this um, on Friday. I thought this was kind of interesting. Everyone seems to believe the problems are just confined to deposit outflows and exposures to treasury securities, but regional banks have had huge exposures to CNI, that's commercial um, and industrial loans, and especially commercial real estate. What lies across the bend is a recession with a feeble recovery, negative credit cycle, deflationary pressure, classic bear market in uh, inequities, and a bull market in long-dated treasuries. Interestingly enough, because, Guy, you had uh, Vincent Daniel of Seawolf Capital on, on the Tape Podcast on Friday, and he made this great point to you and Danny, is that really what's been exchanged for this banking crisis right now versus the GFC is that there was a leverage credit sort of issue right back then. And right now, it really was about interest rate risk. And that's one of the biggest um, differences here. So when you think about what comes after the interest rate risk and the holes that have been left in banking balance sheets, right, and the fear and the lack of confidence investors on the other side of that, and Jim Chanos, and listen to this uh, in the conversation that Danny and I would have with him after, says that is going to be shown in the commercial real estate market, right? So we're going to start seeing defaults ticking up, that sort of thing. So like those two comments by Yardeni and by Rosie, I think are really interesting because to me, I think if people start coming around, and Mike Wilson said this in his note, CIO of Morgan Stanley, that he thinks the end of the bear market comes with kind of a vicious sort of pullback and a lot of economic activity. So to me, I just think that the, that sort of sentiment, whether it happens or not, is the thing that takes equities back towards those October lows and possibly lower. Well, I think the thing that was so scary and so painful about the GFC was that it wasn't just corporate America that got affected. Corporate America certainly did get affected, and maybe those were the headlines that we heard first. But that happened at a time when the majority of the average American's net worth was tied up in their home. And that was the absolute center of that crisis. Everybody lost the thing, the one thing where that most of their net worth was tied up in. We're in a different place now in the sense that, yes, most Americans still have net worth in their home, but the majority of it now, or at least an increasing amount of it, is actually in the stock market. This crisis could end up being, if, if it turns into a crisis, 
could end up being much more of a corporate phenomenon, right? We're going to hear about this in, obviously, the markets, in the banks, in all different companies if they have to do layoffs. And it does bleed into the consumer. Obviously, if people lose their jobs, there's a knock-on effect of that. But there isn't the threat that we had then of the average American's net worth kind of falling with this, you know, almost almost as an innocent bystander. But Guy's been quoting this consumer debt. I mean, think about this, right? So we have unemployment at 50-year lows, and it's just starting to pick up a little bit from 3.4 to 3.6%. And if we do have a recession and we do have tightening of credit standards at a time where consumer debt is off the charts, this will hit households at a time where housing is coming in, right? So the negative wealth effect could be really devastating. And this goes back to just, you know, like being around for multiple cycles here. Um, These are the unintended consequences. I mean, it wasn't long ago that people thought that we were just kind of off to the races, that we were going to come out of the pandemic and there was going to be no scar tissue meaningfully from a financial standpoint, despite the fact the Fed doubling its balance sheet to keep things afloat. It is fascinating. And, you know, we, we talk about recessions and I say it all the time, I'm not an economist, but the census just came out with a statistic that 39.7 million people in this country, and by the way, they thought that the number is probably higher than that or living at or below the poverty line. And if you start doing the math, and this is something I've been saying literally for the last couple of years, you know, 15, 20% of the country and the numbers do add up. They wish we were in a recession. I mean, this is like 1930s for them. It's 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 catastrophic for a lot of these families and that's not going to get much better. And, you know, the problems that they're facing, you're right. There's not a leverage problem in the system the way it was in 08 and 09. I would submit that that is in fact the case. Now it's a confidence problem, which some could say it might even be worse because once those dominoes start to fall and if people start – I mean, our banking system, the, the bedrock of it is a confidence thing, right? People have to have the confidence to know that their money in the bank is safe. And I would submit what the Fed did uh, with Silicon Valley Bank is the exact reason they were put into existence in the first time. Something like that unforeseen happens. They step in and sort of calm the waters. But you know, you have people out there now worrying whether or not their money is money good in banks – and that's a problem. And the fact that you're seeing First Republic, the way the stock is trading, I mean, that has to give you, if nothing else, pause. And again, this Fed meeting, which is coming up very quickly, yeah, we say it all the time, it's the most important meeting. Yeah, this one happens to be because the market's going to take its cues from whatever they say. And I will tell you that if they seem dovish, the inflation problem is just going to manifest itself again. And if they seem too hawkish, we're going to get it on the back end. So they're in a no-win situation, which, by the way, as I said earlier, they put themselves in. Well, not only that, if we want to bring it back to the stock market into this meeting on Wednesday, I mean, the higher that we run into it, and Liz, you started the show off by saying just it's kind of surprising that we're pretty green here. We have two different outcomes for two banks that people were very focused on over the weekend. And you know, as we've been doing this pod, First Republic gets worse. It's down 16.5%. Um, and, and if there's no good outcome for that one, once they get done with First Republic, then they go on to the next one. That's the lesson from 2008. And it got, goes back to what Guy was just saying about investor confidence. And I just do, I do think it was interesting though, that last week you saw the move in the NASDAQ. Okay. And I'm just looking at the QQQ, the NASDAQ 100. And again, we know the top six names make up 45% of the weight of that. You know what they are, the, the Microsoft, the Apple, the Google, Amazon, NVIDIA, um, and Tesla. But that thing went from, I don't know, 285 to as high as almost 309. So here we are at 303. It had this massive, run. You know, late Friday afternoon, I tweeted this out and I was talking about it on Fast Money Friday after the close. 
close. I think that the NASDAQ looks like the fattest pitch or the best short on the board, in my opinion, when you look at that relative strength, that flight to quality. And I'm just looking today, and I do think it's interesting, on a green S&P day, Microsoft's down 2.5%. Amazon's down 2.5%. Google's down 1%. Apple's unchanged here. Um, So there's some major tech names that are kind of struggling a little bit. I think a lot of that is just a bit of a hangover effect. And Peter Bookvar actually hit me after he saw me on Fast Money, and he made this comment in his book report, which uh, I think is a great read, people, so check it out. He said, we saw this big rally in tech last week. Some think they're safe in the environment, but I need to remind people that many customers of big cap tech are small and medium-sized businesses, including VC-funded companies. You can be sure less tech services and software are going to be needed um, at least for the next few quarters. And I would also add that major financial institutions are some of the biggest you know, users of these products and services. So I think that's going to be a huge theme in Q1 earnings when we start getting them from tech in the back half of April. But I'm just curious, Liz, what do you think of tech as a sector here? I'm also seeing semis a little bit weak here. So I, you know, again, we'll look at keep an eye on the NVIDIA and the AMD because those have been leaders of late in this recent rally in tech. There's different levels of fear and there's different levels of breaking confidence. I think we've maybe gone through the first level in the sense of money moved around within the equity market, but didn't entirely move out of the equity market. There's still people that wanted to buy stocks, wanted to believe that we could get through this uh, and we were going to kind of stem the losses and, and it was an isolated event. You you give me, you know, whatever all the excuses are. So the money that wanted to stay in the stock market perhaps came out of some of the cyclicals, went into tech because that's the muscle memory. And you think about where people are assuming the problem is, if it's in for the financial sector and then the regional banks. And if we're going to see rate cuts, I think the logical answer then was, if I want to keep my money in the market, I put it in big tech. Okay. So it sort of made sense that there was a little more stability in those names. But the next level of fear is that money comes out of the stock market entirely, if that's what occurs. And if it comes out of the stock market, it either goes in cash, it goes into bonds, which is, that's kind of the classic rotation that happens in a recessionary environment or in a crisis environment. You see a big rally in bonds, you see a flight to safety, and we've seen some of that already. Obviously, the reaction to the price of gold has occurred. You're going to see that just kind of build on itself if this gets worse, right? So I think we've just kind of hit first order fear. Guy, I got to tell you, and you're not one to kind of pat yourself on the back here. Um, you had a tremendous call about a month ago in gold. You also had a tremendous call um, as it would be um, in rates. And you also said, listen, people, if the 10 year goes back to three and a half percent, you're not going to love the reasons for why that is happening. But just kind of put a pin in this conversation as far as like, you know, the equity market and, and just how it's kind of reacting to what's gone on over the last week. Obviously, tech has been a beneficiary, but I look at, you know, the NASDAQ 100 is up 14% on the year. The S&P is up 2.5% on the year. It makes no sense to me. In some ways, listen, I'm positioned short, SPY, Q, um, XLF here. I'd almost love to take a little bit more pain into Wednesday's meeting because I really do believe there's going to be a bloodletting. I really do believe the S&P is going to be down on the year in the not-so-distant future, and it's going to be on its way back to those October lows, and it's going to be led by tech, which is why I'm also leaning in to the QQQ a little bit. So guy thoughts here, because, you know, this is going to be a tricky couple days, no doubt about it here. What are you most focused on? Because it really is a a, a macro trading period. We also have a VIX at 25. We have crude guy that's breaking down. It's, it's trading at 65. That's kind of warning signs are screaming in silence about a recession and a whole host of kind of risk assets like crude. So just kind of wrap this thing up for us. 
Yeah, well, Elizabeth talks about this. She was concerned that the yield curve was going to continue to invert. But then what she'd said correctly is it's not so much that portion, that's sort of the flashing yellow light. It's when it starts going back the other way. And the fact that you think about it, two tens went from 110 basis points inversion to roughly 40 basis points, maybe in the course of two weeks or so, which is it's hard to put into context the severity of that move. And we, we it, it's, it's almost as if the market completely discounts how broken the bond market is. But to her point that she'll make and she can amplify, I mean, that's not a good sign. It actually is a precursor to some bad things happening. So that's out there. The other part that you mentioned, NASDAQ stocks, these technology stocks doing well. I mean, you're right. It doesn't make sense on one hand. But on the other hand, in a world driven by computer-generated, algorithmic-generated, headline-generated buying and sell orders. I mean, I think it's as simple as with rates going down as precipitously as they did. I think there was just a flight to these high-growth, high-valuation technology names that typically do well in falling interest rate environments. Now, I'm not suggesting that's right, but I think that's to a certain extent what's going on. But when valuations matter, so many of these stocks went from being reasonably valued to expensive once again. So I don't know. There's no flight to quality because I would submit we're not at a quality valuation right now. We're, we're at expensive valuations in a time when people should be paying less for earnings, not more. All right. Well, Guy, thank you very much. Liz Young, you will be back with Guy and me on Market Call on Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern. You know where to find that, people, at MRKT Call on the Twitter, and you can watch it live on the Risk Reversal Media YouTube channel. So smash that subscribe button if you haven't already. That's, right? When there, you Liz. say that, it, it <laughs> makes me I feel like I don't typically get like queasy with, but that just sounds dirty. You to know me. what? My boy Tommy <laughs> over there at Podsave, he says that. I just, it just, stuck with me. I, I just liked it the first time I heard it. And then also people stick around. Danny and I had a great conversation Friday afternoon with Jim Chanos of Chanos & Co. when we come back. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. 
have a very special group here. You know our friend, Danny Moses. He is our co-host of On The Tape. We also have Jim Chanos. He is the founder, president of Chanos & Company. Uh, He is at Wall Street Cynic on the Twitter. Check him out. You probably already follow Jim. So thank you guys uh, very much for being here today on a Friday afternoon. I got to tell you, um, you know, we we obviously talk a lot offline here a little bit. We really wanted to get Jim's take um, on what's gone on. This is probably a very busy week for you, Jim. I know that you started the week with a letter to um, investors in Chanos and Co talking about just kind of what you're seeing as far as this crisis, how it's unfolding and how you would compare it to some different periods um, in the past. Um, I think you put a fine point on something. You don't think this is systemic. Love to just give us a, a, hear your take on what you think is gone on here. Forget kind of like kind of the, you know, we're not going to debate the semantics of a bailout or not. Where are we right now here? Because it's Friday afternoon. We have the S&P down. We have the NASDAQ up. We have some regional banks seeking, uh, sinking. We have some European banks sinking. We have some of the largest kind of custody uh, custodians in the uh, brokerage business that also have banks trading very poorly on a Friday afternoon. And it really feels like it harkens back to some prior periods where maybe investors weren't really seeing what's in front of them right here or, or really taking a look under under the hood, what lies beneath. Put some context into what's gone on in the last two weeks. You've kind of traded through um, all the major crises of the last few decades here. <laughs> well, hi, guys, and thanks. And I guess that's a that's a nice way of saying you're old. But um, yeah. Um, so we put we put out a, a brief a brief memo on Monday night, just um, trying to, to organize our thoughts and the way we looked at what happened to Silicon Valley uh, over the weekend and the the the, the uh, contagion that that occurred on Thursday Friday of last week and over the weekend into Monday, and it it really uh, it really kind of struck us on on how much it looked like. What happened in late '94 uh, in the Orange County crisis, and again in uh, in the late summer of 1998, the LTCM crisis, where you had, in effect, highly leveraged players who had bought long-duration bonds. Because remember, that really was the problem at Silicon Valley, and to a lesser extent, um, um, FRC, um, and and uh, I think Republic Bank, and, and I think that uh, they were caught off sides, right? They, they had basically lent long and borrowed short. They funded themselves with low cost or no cost deposits. And, and the market finally woke up to what was apparent to a lot of people from last summer of just the, the mark to market losses that were occurring at these institutions that was kind of uh, masked by the, the, the use of Held the so-called held the maturity accounting, which by the way came in after the global financial crisis, as a as a way to stop the bleeding back then for derivatives uh, uh, securities that uh, they, the banks didn't want to mark to market anymore, and so again, kind of be be careful what you wish for, right? And and so uh, with the proviso that never underestimate the ability of the government to screw things up, I mean our view is that this is not a credit transmission device. Uh, I think this is really a, a funding problem at a select number of banks that just simply mismanaged Banking 101, which is to try to at least meaningfully match your asset liability durations um, and not stretch for yield 
and finance it overnight at zero percent. And and because at the end of the day, if we know if you remember what sunk the investment banks in 08, and I know Danny does, it's because they ended up with a whole bunch of toxic, hard to market, hard to value securities at the bottom of their balance sheets financed in the basically overnight repo market. And 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 that's just you can't do that. And and we found out that the hard way again this go around. So um, now, having said that, the regional banks are now under scrutiny, have another longer term problem. And that is, as we've discussed sometimes in the past, their reliance on commercial real estate. And, and the credit event that, that's in the future is in commercial real estate, um, probably not long term bonds at this point. Yeah, I mean, I can follow on, Dan, here is that I worked at MBIA, actually, during the Orange County debacle. Um, I got to meet the long-term capital people after they left Solomon to set up shop. I was in their private room, and Myron Scholes was running around. Um, And every kind of blow-up is different, but they all kind of go back to the same thing. Bad risk management and not having the ability to have permanent capital. And this is a combination of all of that. With the banks, obviously, there's no permanent capital if people make a run on deposits. Um, in 1998, you know, from a margin call perspective, long-term capital got over their skis. It took one currency to go against them. Orange County was a county commissioner uh, who got sold um, uh, swaps on interest rate swaps from Merrill Lynch and blew himself up. And some are contagion and some are not. And in this case, Jim makes the most important point, which is beyond all of this, beyond these were the easy things. Treasuries and mortgage-backed securities are effectively guaranteed by the government. If you feel safe with that, great. But beyond that, you're not bailing out commercial real estate and you're already seeing defaults that are occurring. I mean, this this began with Blackstone REIT. And I've said this all week, so I feel like a broken record here. And Starwood back in the fall, the only difference in their issue and run on deposits is they gated to 5% per quarter, or it would have been a massive run. And Brookfield and PIMCO defaulted on billions of dollars of commercial real estate here recently in the office property market. So those are the things to me. And the last thing I'll say is that as a result of all of this, with the scrutiny coming on the regional banks and people finally reading Q's and K's, and the big banks are about to get bigger. And that's the worst case scenario from a regular, you know, regulator's perspective. So it's a near-term band-aid and you feel good about it. But again, that'll have ramifications down. The well, that, listen, guys, th- that's the thing that I think we have to focus on here. If you're watching this, if you're listening to this right now, okay, and, and you know, Jim just mentioned long-term capital. This was in 1998. And 1998 was in the middle of a epic bull market, right? The S&P 500 from 95 till 2000 literally averaged 30% gains a year, okay? And we had the Asia debt crisis. We had long-term capital. We had a lot of stuff that was thrown at it. And I, I know, Jim, you're going to talk about where um, interest rates were, where inflation was, like all that sort of stuff. And I want to get to that. But when I think about, you know, the idea of this not being systemic, and I'm not trying to say that there's something here, like there's something evil that lies beneath, but look at what's happened, right? So we started the week with SVB going to zero, all right? And we could be ending the week, right, with FRC, First Republic, you know, going to near zero, okay? And that's after it already had its explicit guarantee and its bank bailout from a consortium, that sort of thing. And I look around and obviously Credit Suisse and full disclosure, I've been um, an advisor to Credit Suisse um, over the last six and a half years to their investment bank. None of the stuff that's gone on um, with this, but this is their technology investment banking group. But obviously you see the headlines there. So there's some issues with European banks. And then when you 
look at what's going on with Schwab, okay? And Danny, you and I talked about this. We started the, the, the week talking about this, and we'll get into that. But don't tell me for a second, guys, and I'd love to tell I'd love for you guys to tell me why I'm wrong, that Wells Fargo, JP Morgan, Citibank, Bank of America don't have some similar sorts of duration issues that some of these regionals have because at every crisis that we have seen, there have been very few that have been immune to the one problem that usually gets us focused on, right, calling whatever it is a crisis. So, Jim, I'd love to get your take on that because at some point, I really feel like we're dealing with the things that we can deal with right now that were most acute, that were kind of most obvious to the system, but there has to be some issues at some of the larger banking institutions. And you tell me whether their balance sheets are just big enough that it's not going to be the sort of thing that bubbles up. I just feel like what comes out in the next couple of months are going to be disclosures from those, those sorts of institutions. Why are they not gobbling up these banks? Did they learn the lesson of not buying a countrywide in 07, right? When it looked like it was a flex. And that's what I want to get to on this. And that might also lead us to some of the issues that you think are going to happen or unfold in commercial real estate. Well, okay, so look, you can have a banking system that functions uh, by, by government direction and fiat um, that, that trades at, you know, 20% of book value. I know a country in Asia where that's the case. They're the largest banks in the world. They all trade at, at, at you know, a quarter of their book value in China because, you know, no one trusts the assets, but the government explicitly and implicitly stands behind the deposits. That's what you have with the major money center banks. That's what you have with the Canadian banking system. That's what you have with lots of banking systems. You have quasi-nationalized banking systems in most of the developed world. This isn't a surprise to us anymore. What we have is also a fairly robust regional banking system, right? That's that's unusual in all of the developed world, right? The rest of the developed world doesn't have regional banks for the most part. Um, it really, that's a U.S. phenomenon. And so, you know, that we have to understand the bifurcated nature of our banking system. Um, and, and that this whole idea of uninsured deposits, insured deposits is kind of ridiculous at this point in time. Um, but it's, it's uniquely American. It's kind of why we don't have national health insurance. I mean, to, 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 to push a, a point and not to be political, the rest of the world has figured out you, you give major medical to every citizen and you, you tax it for them. And, and in our system, we don't believe in that. So we've got this kind of jerry-rigged system of regional banks and are they guaranteed? Are they not guaranteed? Well, they're guaranteed in a crisis, but not otherwise. And I mean, it's really kind of silly. Um, now, that's, that's our reality, and so we'll have to deal with it. I'm much more worried, to your point, about future credit problems than I am mismatch problems. And, and so that's, and, and you mentioned when you talked about commercial real estate, I mean, part of the problem of the last 13 or 14 years of zero interest rate policies and QE is that we have all kinds of business models and assets that are based on really perpetually low interest rates, whether it's commercial real estate. Commercial real estate is a, is a stream of cash flows, right? Financed at a certain cap rate. Um, you know, whether it, it, it's the ABS market, whether it's car loans, uh, leases, solar panels, what, what have you. And everybody built into their models that interest rates would stay low for almost forever. 
And we're getting to see that that's not the case. And I think it's going to expose a lot of other flawed businesses beyond regional banks that people should be mindful of um, in their portfolio. Well, you, you guys have been pointing that out. I know that, uh, Jim, you in particular, and obviously Danny and Vidi and Porter over there at Seawolf and our listeners, our viewers have had the benefit of that. But Danny, when I look at just the way that our major money center banks are trading right now, this Friday afternoon across the board from JP Morgan down three and a third percent to, um, you know, Bank America, Wells Fargo City, you know, down about the same here. And, you know, it just feels like investors right now want to shoot first, ask questions later in anything that's kind of banking related. And I'm just curious, what, what does that mean to you? But, they're, but Danny, Dan, they're doing it on both sides, right? It's they're, they're buying Coinbase, which is a money losing, you know, crypto broker. Right. Um, but 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 and, 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 but in market cap terms, like if all the morons want to, if they want to kind of crowd into a fifteen billion dollar market cap game, that we know that you know finally we've been in the the biggest inflationary period right in, in forty or fifty years, and crypto didn't work. Crypto didn't work right until we had a little banking crisis here, and we know that that's going to go the opposite way. So like to me, I always kind of think about it in those sorts of terms. I don't think serious investors are buying Coinbase or buying Bitcoin right now. I just do not. I don't think that they think it's a safe haven the way Danny and Guy have been all over gold. And you guys nailed that, you know, when it got down to what, what like just below 170. But Danny, what, what does it mean to you on a Friday afternoon to see a Schwab down 5% after the move that it's had over the last month? And then the continuation of the move in the large money centers, I mean, is it kind of got your antennas up here a little bit? Um, because I think the way a lot of investors are looking at the broad market right here. They're not particularly too worried with the VIX here at 25. Let me go back and address the word uh, systemic because I think it scares people. But let's be clear. We never cleared the market correctly in 2008. We put in a lot of different programs that absorbed into the government's balance sheet and extended you know, losses over a long period of time. What is systemic right now is the impact that higher rates, as Jim mentioned, will have on the entire economy, specifically, I think, on the banking sector. And the reason these banks are down is because they trade on net interest margin and their cost of capital is going to move higher. They're going to have to pay the price to the FDIC, whoever for this. But with that, and Jim's point about the ABS market, when you start to have to charge more to your clients or pulling warehouse lines, let's keep in mind, what caused the crisis in 2008 was going to end eventually. It ended actually in 2006, the market. It just took the market a year to figure it out. Was the big banks started to pull the warehouse lines from these mortgage lenders because they had backed up into the system and they were unable, Wall Street was unable to keep packaging these mortgages and sell them. The whole system came to a crop. Now, that was a credit issue. People are taking comfort in the fact that this is, quote, not a credit issue. This is a duration issue, right? That can be settled over a period of years. So people take a deep breath there. But I really think it's important to focus on is the non-guaranteed type things that banks have, the commercial real estate, which Jim is talking about, which is systemic. And it is systemic because we no one has plugged in. Let me just say this, the same way that, that in 2005 and six, when we figured out that the rating agencies, and they're fantastic, by the way, never had down home prices in their model. So there was never an instance where home price home prices were not appreciating or at least staying flat. That made that model work. Same thing here. Put 5% rates in, put 4 put 6% rates in. At Jim's point, rates were much higher back in the early 90s, potentially, the causes. So that's systemic in the sense of what higher rates will do to this economy. So, Dan, these big banks are now going to be bailing out the regionals. They're going to morph kind of into each other over a period of time. And 
They won't be able potentially to do all the trading on the risk-weighted assets they want to do. Historically, the Goldman and Morgan Stanley make money on a proprietary basis. If all that gets curled in, you're buying you know, less ROE earning company, right? You can talk about book value. They can still make money. That's not cataclysmic. And I'm not worried about the big banks. But I think I'll end with this on this, on this rant here, is that if you're trading the market on S&P earnings, and I don't care if your numbers for 2023 is 200, 210, 220, or 230, you just took one of the bigger sectors of the S&P 500. It's not small, the financials. And you basically guarantee that earnings are going to go down. That's without question. But more importantly, they're so connected because it's such a financialized economy and market to all the other things I just mentioned of how they lend out. And that has a follow-on effect. So what I'm saying, Dan, I think we just, yes, we pulled forward the Fed being done. Yay, let's celebrate. But we also, what I think, pulled forward the absolute you know, <laughs> nail in the coffin that Earnings are going lower. And so how do you trade that? You know, and how, so this is going to be a real great time, I think, to make money on the long and short side. And I think people are, just don't know. So what you they mean long know. puts, right? So um, on the long side. Hey, but, but Jim, <laughs> but Jim, doesn't this, I mean, you know, listen, I look at this and, and I see how gingerly the major banks have acted relative to, let's say, at you know, 2008. And, and, and again, it was pretty striking that it's 15 years basically to the week when J.P. Morgan got the guarantee. They bought Bear Stearns. The S&P rallied 15 percent, OK, into like its highs in May. All right. And, and people thought that this was something like of a one off. And the only thing that I know in my 25 years in the business, and I guess I'm kind of old too here, um, is that there's no one-offs, especially when it comes to financial companies in a way. And I think, you know, as I was sitting back and looking at what the Fed and the FDIC and the Treasury and the White House, what they said and what they did only makes our financial system that much more unstable in the future. And, and so I'm curious your take on that, because I think these banks are going to look like massive regulated, you know, sort of utilities in a way. And so to me, I think they should be going much lower, in my opinion. And that's the sort of thing. That's a lack of confidence that could kind of be the bridge to those sorts of credit events as they have to pull back risk taking. And so I'm just curious your take on that, because there's no way the market can rally another 10, 15 percent. And the same morons who are calling for a new bull market in the start of February are going to be saying the same crap, okay? But I'm just telling you, I think it's very different this time. And I'm just curious. And I'm not trying to get people sort of freaked out a little bit here. It just feels like it's the same playbook where the people who are predetermined to be permabulls are going to look at this and they're not going to see the forest for the trees. So is there a question there? Help me here, brother. Come on. Like, I'm just saying, like, but like, I just, I just feel like that, that, that. Look at the NASDAQ today. Look at Microsoft up one and a half percent and Google up one and a half percent and some of this stuff. And it's keeping the, the NASDAQ. And I know there's an MSI, uh, MSCI rebalance here or whatever. I think the NASDAQ looks like the fattest pitch in the market right here to sell this for all the reasons that Danny just mentioned and you mentioned about S&P uh, earnings right now. Well, uh, I'll, 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 I'll put it on the other foot. I, if you believe, and as I said, we have three we have three pillars of this market again. Inflation's coming back down to two to three. Uh, the Fed will be cutting rates uh, very soon, and and earnings are, are going to be very strong. Um, if you thought inflation was coming down to two to three percent, why would you be buying the ten year at three percent or three and a half? Um, and and this is 
the only reason you would is because you believe we're going back to a QE ZERP, you know, uh, uh, mindset. That's the one thing I don't think is happening. And so that that is the fact that the inflation genie came out of the bottle in 2021 and 2022 and 2023 is a sea change that I think investors are underestimating. And the fact that that now there is a consequence to endless money printing and, and fiscal deficits, because we're seeing it. And with onshoring and lots of other issues that, that have moved us away from globalization, then I think that, that the entire playbook of the last 40 years, truly, if you really want to be you know, macro bearish, the entire playbook of the last 40 years has to be read from, from in reverse. And, and that, that rates will, will fluctuate, but go higher. Um, inflation will be hard to contain. Uh, deficits will be increased. Labor will, will become much more powerful relative to capital. If you believe those things, and I do believe those things, then I think you're looking, as, as Danny says, in an environment where you're going to have to be nimble on both sides of the market. And as opposed to just basically playing with beta, you're going to really need to generate alpha. And, and that's, that's a skill set that, you know, a lot of people have left behind years ago. Yeah, you know, Danny, it's interesting that you just, um, you know, and we've been talking about this on the pod for a very long time. And, and and again, I've said this on many occasions. In the summer of 2021, you talked about a stagflationary environment and what it would mean for risk assets. I think you were one of the first out there talking about it. Um, and I think that's really interesting what Jim just said about the reversal of 40 or 50 years of globalization. And, you know, I don't know if you guys saw this um, tweet from Ro Khanna. Um, who's the congressman um, from Silicon Valley who is urging um, a bailout of the banks. This was this morning. Offshoring is a race to the bottom. It hurts American workers in our communities. Not only are jobs being shipped overseas, but companies are also avoiding taxes. We need to uh, invent it, make it, and buy it here in America. Well, here's the thing, man. You do that with all the incentives that you have and all of these subsidies that have been introduced in the IRA and the CHIPS Act and all that sort of stuff, and we start bringing back jobs quickly, right, at a time where we know what's happened to unemployment and wage growth, I mean, that could be one of the most inflationary things that would happen. I think you're speaking to that, um, Jim, a little bit here. So um, to me, I, I actually think that some of these lawmakers who don't really seem to have their finger on the pulse all the time need to kind of take a step back here um, a little bit, especially when they're the ones who are kind of clamoring for um, this sort of bailout. Um, Danny, I'm, I'm just curious, like when you look around the market today, this week in general, and you see some of the areas that are acting well, energy, crude oil in particular, is speaking to what I think is um, you know, a, a weaker economy going forward. If you look at some of the transports, if you look at the flooding to, let's call it, you know, like I, I don't know if Jacob can pull up this Apple chart. If you took, you know, this this the date in which we are in the market that we're in and you put that chart up there, this is one of the best looking charts in the market. I'm just saying it's, it's a beautiful kind of looking chart. Look at that thing, right? It, it's making a nice little flag there. It's had that big rally back or whatever. But if you think about like the environment that we, I think collectively think we're going to be from an economic standpoint, some of these stocks don't make any sense at these valuations, especially if we're going to have inflation stick around and be pe pesky and persistent as guy calls it. Um, and then also slower growth. Talk to me a little bit of some other areas in the market away from uh, financials and banks in particular, Danny, where you'd be focused. Well, I think more importantly, I just want to say you can't unwind, you know, all these years of free money in a year. 
And to Jim's point, you know, undoing 40 years of this stuff is a whole nother thing. And globalization coming back to our, you know, our shores, those come, there's a lot of positives to that. But to the point is that it's hard to see inflation coming down in that. And it's hard to see margins not contracting as a result of that. But I think I'm not upset with people that that are bullish, really, because they either haven't lived through these cycles or don't understand it. Um, so there's plenty of sectors potentially within the industrials, let's say, of and small and mid cap companies that have pricing power, right? That obviously can pass on some of these increased costs of wages and so forth. And you know, this is about the white collar worker potentially from an unemployment perspective. And everything's been kind of backwards or disorganized as far as this cycle, right? The rolling recession, rich session, whatever you want to call it. And so the job losses we're seeing right now are really in the higher income brackets, middle to higher in- income brackets. And that has a tag on effect, Dan, in consumer discretionary, which drives our entire economy. I'm happy for people that are making more money that have a trade that, you know, this country was really built on. And that's a huge positive. So I understand a local congressman or woman in their jurisdiction praising a plant coming in because they're not their jobs not to think about the stock market. The job, But the point is here, we have a lot of things happening at the same time. And so, again, I will say this, I think there will be great opportunities potentially in this market, you know, on the long side when it does. But we're in, in real time here, we're, we're flying a plane and there's a wing that needs repair while you're literally in the air here. And listen, people are paid in the long only community to outperform their indice by choosing a sector to overweight or underweight. So let's you know, that's how they're paid. Hedge funds are paid on absolute return and that's how how they make their money. And and so everybody has a different kind of, a, you know, you know, incentive here. But I think the one thing that is lost is that is that the, there's been no stock picking going on. And the the advent of passive has gotten to such a point where people disassociate or kind of associate, they take the clues, Dan, that you just made from the market. And if the market rallies, they let they let that determine if things are okay versus looking at it and saying, why would it rally? And so that's, and, and I would just- Look at Silicon, Danny, look at Silicon Valley Bank as a great example. It was very clear from their financial statements starting in the second quarter of last year that their bond portfolio was so underwater that it was exceeded tangible equity. Now, we've known that since the summer of last year. It's been talked about. It, it, in, in our fund, we got short Silicon Valley in January and got our faces ripped off uh, because the company reported, quote unquote, good earnings as the portfolio deteriorated more for the fourth quarter. And the stock went from 250 to 320. And, and, and the entire time, what ultimately sunk that bank was was getting worse. And it wasn't an, until the company itself quite literally said we need to raise capital and then couldn't do so and screwed up, you know, in eight different ways to Friday last week um, that that anything that be, was apparent to anybody who could read a balance sheet mattered. And then it mattered in two days. What does that tell you? Um, uh, it, 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 I mean, I, I keep joking. Efficient markets? Question mark. I mean, it, this is this is insanity to me that that stock was trading at 130 to 140 percent of, ta- of of stated book value. Tangible book value was was negative uh, on a mark to market basis, but uh, it was trading at 130 to 140 percent. Book value was two hundred dollars, and it collapsed from I think 260, right? 250, whatever. And, 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 and everything that was apparent that sunk that bank last Thursday and Friday was apparent since last July. Yeah. 
But Jim, doesn't that speak to the fact that, you know, if, if you're, if, if you kind of feel like we're at the later innings of this crisis, and I know you don't feel that and, and Danny doesn't feel that, but there's some out there that does, it, it just doesn't speak to the fact that, I mean, we're going to have many more bank failures and there's maybe not going to be many as large as, let's say, Silicon Valley Bank. But look what's going on with Schwab. I mean, it's Friday afternoon. It's 1.30. The stock was just down 4%. It's rallying a little bit. They just put out um, a, a press release. Schwab, confident in approach. Schwab says it got uh, about $16.5 billion in core net new assets for the week. And so when you think about what's going on, that this is so reminiscent. And this is not even summer of 08 or September of 08. This is still the stuff that was going on in March of April of 08. And, and I know it's almost too easy of a comparison. But where does this go next here a little bit? Because to me, I'm just going to say it again. I think this stuff, I think correlations are going to go much higher. I think you're seeing like a little bit of this, you know, flight to stability and some of these other names. Um, but I think, again, I'm just going to say this. I think like the NASDAQ, I think it's a fat pitch here. Um, and maybe we go a little bit higher here, but I think it comes in. What, what, what's, what's next in the next week or two or three? Um, are we likely to see a couple more um, backstops of some big financial institutions? And does it give market participants more or less confidence in your opinion? So uh, let me take a stab at that first. I don't know that there's going to be a lot more bank failures, Dan, but what I will tell you and what you should avoid in your portfolio is anybody dependent upon third-party financing to keep the lights on. I think that's going to be a big problem for the coming weeks and months. So if you have a business model that's dependent on Wall Street securitizations or selling assets, uh, if you're a real estate guy or, or you know a REIT, or whatever have you, if you are dependent upon that, you're going to have a problem because spreads are going to widen out for those kinds of business models, at least for the foreseeable future. And anybody that's that's you know got a huge multiple or depending on you know three and four and five percent cap rates in real estate or what have you, I think is in for a rude awakening. And a lot of those companies and, and business models are heavily leveraged and, and just like a bank. And so I, I would I would avoid like the plague anything that fits that definition. Yeah. And Dan, I'll just say, well, we have a lot coming up, right? We have the Fed next week. So we'll see how strong Powell's going to be and you know if he's going to be hawkish or not. Um, you may talk a big game and then they may go 25 basis points, but we'll see. Um, I think we're basically done raising rates, which is not necessarily a good thing because, Dan, to the point you made, it almost, you know, the stagflationary environment potentially pulls itself forward as a result of that, of not curtailing or trying to contain inflation. The lag effects of all the rate hikes are, you know, are hitting now, obviously. And then you're going to go into bank earnings. And I think you're going to see in the first two weeks of April, whether they wait for their actual earnings date or do something sooner. I don't think from a big bank perspective, yes, you'll have the warm and fuzzies. But I think from the stuff they're going to say about the curtailing of lending and cost of capital and we're examining this and that, they have no choice but to be that to do that because they're really getting the purview now of the regulators again, for better or for worse. And so, listen, I, I just think we're going to be in a, a very difficult environment here. And I, I try to maintain balance here. But when I, you know, once you see the end of the world in 2008, and I, I laugh because it's uncomfortable, once you've seen that, there's, there's scar tissue there. And when you go into this debt ceiling negotiation, which let's not kid ourselves, that's in the backdrop here. And that's not a forefront. And yes, it might be solved. But when all those things are adding up, and if you analyze the U.S. balance sheet as its own company, USA Incorporated and looked at it, 
that stock would not trade well on its own, given it, its debt to equity and so forth. And so I just worry that we're not going to have a very positive macro or micro environment here you know, for a while. Listen, there's always things to own, but don't kid yourself. We're going to have news every day about a bank, big or small, into the Fed next week and then soon after that. So this isn't going away anymore. Yeah, I, no, I agree with that. Um, and I think you bring up a great point. Once we get by the Fed, it really is all about this debt ceiling. And, you know, um, you know, it, when you think about the job that Kevin McCarthy has to do, it's a near impossibility because um, there's a handful of people in his own party who are going to try to extract amazing concessions, right, at a time where they know that, like, this has to get done because you can't backstop every bank in America to the tunes of trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars of deposits if there's a worry that the government is going to default on their debt. And that is going to happen. That's coming to a theater near you. I just say this, Jim, and, and you know, uh, and, we'll, and we'll get out of here. We really, really appreciate your time here. But when you think about what Danny just mentioned, that these bank earnings are going to start in mid-April uh, and it's going to be, you know, within a, a month or so. Look at like an American Express and Danny used the term risk rich session. It went from $155 into its earnings, into its Q4 earnings when it reported to $180. And look, at it's given it all back, right? And just, just the last week and a half or so. And when you think about what these banks have to say, and obviously that's not a bank, um, but into their prints, I mean, this is going to be a really dicey time because the last thing you want to do is be on the hook for not being as transparent as you should be, especially when you know all of the conversations that are happening with the feds, with, you know, all, all these bank CEOs are going to be down in Washington over the next few weeks in and out. And they're going to have to be really honest about all this stuff. There's one other difference that I, I should point out before we leave that I think the markets haven't appreciated yet. And that is, um, for the most part, um, big business, big banks could depend on, on, on a pretty pretty sympathetic hearing from one party down in Washington um, to carry their water. And often both parties. That has now changed. Um, the political uh, environment has become much more populist and, and anti-corporate on both in both parties. And I, I think that that's something that I don't think market uh, participants appreciate as much as they should uh, is just uh, you, I, I don't know if you saw Yellen getting grilled yesterday, but uh, but but the fact of the matter is is that there's now a, a fair amount of, of, of politicians in both parties that are not just predisposed to help the corporate and help the, the corporate financial sector like they used to. And that is something investors should consider. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, what, what, one last thing here. I mean, you know, we came into this year and, and Jim, you mentioned this kind of January rally into February, and then it kind of turned over a little bit. And and a lot of the things that people, for whatever reason, in cognitive dissonance, I, I don't know. But the the notion that the, the, the S&P being down two consecutive years is something that happens so infrequently, right? And I'm looking at the S&P, it's still up 2% on the year. It was down 22% last year. Um, you know, I, I have scar tissue from 2001, 02, a protracted bear market, um, a protracted recession here. We haven't even had the recession yet. I mean, like like the recession that is very likely to come. So Danny, I'm just curious, um, just let, let, let's end it with this. Um, you know, 
What do, you, what do you go from here? I know that you you say this all the time. You know, it's a stock picker's market. You got to do your work on individual names. But man, if correlations are going to go higher, right? Um, and we're going to have another test of those October lows, which I believe we're going to have in the S&P, um, in the NASDAQ. I mean, there are not too many places to hide right now. And so I'm just curious your thoughts on, on that, um, because I, I don't know. I don't. I just don't know how you could be looking at this market the way I am and not think that we are going to retrust uh, those lows from October. People like to cherry pick, um, you know, events and that works to their narrative, bulls and bears. But I'll tell you what's also unprecedented is four consecutive seventy-five basis points hike by the Federal Reserve. That's never happened. And so I think when we talk about can you have two down years? Yes, you could have three down years. You could have you know a, a lot of stuff happening at the same time. So. You know, I kind of want to end this. It's, you know, happy St. Patrick's Day. March Madness is here. It's a lot of fun. Let's go out and have a good time. And I just think to Jim's point, and, and I can't reiterate this enough, the information on a lot of these things is right in front of you. Don't be willfully ignorant to them. Accept them. Move on. If you're long something, no one's telling you to go short it, but just be smart. And so there, again, I, I know I don't want to be a perma bear here, but I'm a realist in the sense of what I think is going to unfold here. And it's just not natural to have all these years of stimulus unfold. And you know what? I, I'm not going to be shocked when QE comes back. I mean, they got it to 8.4 trillion. If it goes to 10 and we try to inflate our way out of this, nothing would shock me at this point. But that being said, my biggest concern is if the market starts to question the credibility um, or financial stability of our country, of our government itself, then that's a whole nother issue. And that almost happened in 2008, Dan, and I pray that it doesn't and we get this thing under control. So. I like these type of markets because I think there's a lot of, again, you know, a lot of opportunity. So, well, we, we like it from a trading perspective. It gives someone like you, Jim, a lot of opportunities to kind of lay some shorts out. You kind of gave that example of how you're getting squeezed a little bit in February, but things are starting to play out. That was in the Silicon Valley. You want to give us a last word. A lot of our viewers, a lot of our listeners, um, they are not institutional um, investors. And so like, just, just from where you sit and, and kind of having seen, this is how we started this conversation, a lot of crises over the last few decades or so kind of put some context, um, about just kind of what, what sort of, um, what sort of inning are we in, in this sort of thing? You think it's uh, closer to the end or closer to the beginning? Look, we, we are, we are at elevated levels. I, I, my, my ability to pick stock market levels is, is, you know, abysmal, but, but we are at elevated levels. We not only are at 19 times earnings right now, but we are at all time high record profit margins. Um, and, and in some cases, some people believe our profit margin, corporate profit margins are two X the norm. And so we, this has been an unprecedented time. If you have held financial assets or real estate, uh, if you really have held assets and uh, all I would just tell tell your listeners and viewers is just be mindful of the fact that that we are pretty far over on the bell curve of, of, of historical returns over long periods of time, profit margins, all these great things that have happened that if you have held been in finance as we've been lucky to be or have held financial assets, you know, you've benefited. That is not always the case. I point out that from 66 to 82, when we saw the, the resurgence of inflation and the Fed trying to battle inflation over that time period, not only were returns lower in real terms over that period, but nominal GDP growth had one of its best 15-year periods ever. 
lots of people entered the workforce. The middle class did great in the late 60s and 70s. People forget that. Wall Street lost 75% of its employees. 75% of people that were employed in Wall Street in the mid to late 60s were not there when I got in the business in 1980. And, and the financialization of the economy got hollowed out. And that could easily happen again. And, and so the real economy did just fine. The financial economy did not. And financial assets did not. And so that can happen. It's happened already once in my lifetime. And I just caution everybody to, to understand the risks in their portfolio, have some cash, watch the leverage, don't trade on margin, you know, do all the things that, that, that people would tell you doing a conservative investment approach um, would warrant. That's what you should be doing right now. And by the way, if it doesn't work out and the markets continue to roar, you'll be just fine. Yeah, no, that that's great advice um, from both of you guys. And I really um, appreciate that. And just so you know, when you talk about the hollowing out of Wall Street, we're going to be back on Monday on Market Call at 1 o'clock. It's just going to be me and, and chat GPT-4. Um, so um, we're going to uh, give you guys the day off. So now, listen, uh, Jim Chanos of Chanos & Co., thank you so much. Danny Moses, as always, you are our consummate partner here on our pods and everything like that. So thanks, guys. Have a great weekend. Have a great uh, afternoon into the close here today. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.